Welcome to tape number two of Gleanings in the Godhead, part two, Excellencies which pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of accuracy, a distinction should be drawn between the condescension and the humiliation of Christ, though most writers confound them. This distinction is made by the Holy Spirit, Philippians 2, 7-8. First, he made himself of no reputation. Second, he humbled himself. The condescension of God the Son consisted of his assuming our nature, the Word becoming flesh. His humiliation lay in the consequent abasement and sufferings he endured in our nature. The assumption of human nature was not of itself a part of Christ's humiliation, for he still retained in it his glorious exaltation. But for God the Son to take into union with himself a created nature, animated dust was an act of infinite condescension, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name Philippians 2, 6-9 These verses trace the path of the mediator from highest glory to deepest humiliation and back again to his supreme honor. What a wondrous path was his, and how terrible was this divine description of his path, excuse me, and how terrible that this divine description of his path should have become the battleground of theological contention. A few points has the awful depravity of man's heart been more horribly displayed than by the blasphemies vented upon these verses. A glance at the context, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 5, at once shows the practical design of the apostle was to exhort Christians to spiritual fellowship among themselves, to be like-minded, to love one another, to be humble and lowly, to esteem others better than themselves. To enforce this, the example of our Lord is proposed in the verse we now consider. We are to have the same mind in us that was in Him, the mind, spirit, habit of self-abnegation, the mind of self-sacrifice and of obedience to God. 
We must humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God if we are to be exalted by Him in due time. 1 Peter 5.6 To set before us the example of Christ in its most vivid colors, the Holy Spirit takes us back to the position which our mediator occupied in eternity. He shows us that supreme dignity and glory was his, then reminds us of those unfathomable depths of condescension and humiliation into which he descended for our sakes, who, being in the form of God. First of all, this affirms the absolute deity of the Son, for no mere creature, no matter how high in the scale of being, could ever be in the form of God. Three words are used concerning the Son's relation to the Godhead. First, he subsists in the form of God, seen in him alone. Second, he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, which expression tells of his manifestation of God to us. Compare 2 Corinthians 4.6. Third, he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, Hebrews 1.3. Or more exactly, the effulgence or outshining of his glory and the exact expression of his substance, Baxter's Interlinear Bible. These perhaps combine both concepts suggested by form and image, namely that the whole nature of God is in Christ, that by Him God is declared and expressed to us. Who being or subsisting, it is hardly correct to speak of a divine person existing. He is self-existent. He always was in the form of God. Form the Greek word is only found elsewhere in the New Testament in Philippians 2.7. Mark 16.12 is what is apparent. The form of God is an expression which seems to denote his visible glory, his displayed majesty, his manifested sovereignty. From eternity the Son was clothed with all the insignia of deity, adorned with all divine splendor. The word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1 thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Although every word in this verse has been the occasion of contention, but we have sufficient confidence in the superintendent in the superintending providence of God to be satisfied the translators of our authorized version were preserved from any serious mistake on a subject so vitally important. As the first clause of our verse refers to an objective delineation of the divine dignity of the Son, So this second clause affirms his subjective consciousness. The word thought is used here in the aorist tense to indicate a definite point in time past. The word rendered robbery denotes not the spoil or prize, but the act of taking the spoil. The Son did not reckon equality with the Father and the Holy Spirit, an act of usurping. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This is only a negative way to say that Christ considered equality with God as what justly and essentially belonged to him. It was him, his, by indisputable right. Christ esteemed such equality as no evasion of another's prerogative, but regarded himself as being entitled to all divine honors. Because he held the rank of one of the three co-eternal, co-essential, and co-glorious persons of the Godhead, the Son reckoned his full and perfect equality with the other two was, unchal- was his unchallengeable, unchallengeable portion. In verse 6 is no doubt a latent reference to Satan's fall. He, though the anointed cherub, Ezekiel 28.14, was infinitely below God, yet 
He grasped at equality with him. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isaiah 14.14 However, the Greek word for robbery is translated. It is evident the emphatic term of this clause is equal, for it signifies a real and proper equality. Excuse me. For if it signifies a real and proper equality, then the proof of the for the absolute deity of the Savior is irrefutable. How then is the exact significance of this term to be determined? Not by having recourse to Homer, nor any other heathen writer, but by discovering the meaning of its cognate. If we can fix the precise rendering of the adjective, then we may be sure of the adverb. The adjective is found in several passages, Matthew 20.12, Luke 6.34, John 5.18, Acts 11.17, Revelation 21.6. In each passage, the reference is not to a likeness only, but to a real and proper equality. Thus, the force of this clause is parallel with, I and my Father are one, John 10.30. My Father is greater than I, John 14.28, must not be allowed to negate John 10.30. There are no contradictions in Holy Writ. Each of these passages may be given its full force without there being any conflict between them. The simple way to discover their perfect consistency is to remember that Scripture exhibits our Savior in two chief characters, as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and as Mediator, the God-Man, the Word become flesh. In the former, he is described as possessing all the perfections of deity, in the latter, as the servant of the Godhead, speaking of himself according to his essential being, he could unqualifiedly say, I and I and the Father are one, one in essence or nature. Speaking of himself according to his mediatorial office, he could say, My Father is greater than I, not essentially, but economically. Each expression used, Philippians 2.6, is expressly designed by the Holy Spirit to magnify the divine dignity of Christ's person, He is the possessor of a glory equal with God's, with an unquestioned right to that glory, deeming it no robbery to challenge it. His glory is not an accidental or phenomenal one, but a substantial and essential one, subsisting in the very form of God. Between what is infinite and what is finite, what is eternal and what is temporal, he who is the creator and what is the creature, it is utterly impossible there should be any equality. To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Isaiah 40.25 is God's own challenge. Thus, for any creature to deem himself equal with God would, would be the highest robbery and supremest blasphemy, but made himself of no reputation. The meaning of these words is explained in those which immediately follow. So far was the Son from tenaciously insisting upon his personal rights as a member of the Blessed Trinity, he voluntarily relinquished them. He willingly set aside the magnificent distinctions of the Creator to appear in the form of a creature, yes, in the likeness of a fallen man. He abdicated his position of supremacy and entered one of servitude. Though equal in majesty and glory with God, he joyfully resigned himself to the Father's will, John 6.38. Incomparable condescension was this. 
He who was by inherent right in the form of God suffered his glory to be eclipsed, his honor to be laid in the dust, and himself to be humbled to a most shameful death, and took upon him the form of a servant. In doing so, he did not cease to be all that he was before, but he assumed something he had not been previously. There was no change in his divine nature, but the uniting to his divine person of a human nature. Quote from John Owen, He who is God can no more be not God than he who is not God can be God. End quote. None of Christ's divine attributes were relinquished, for they are as inseparable from his person as heat is from fire or weight from substance. But his majestic glory was, for a season, obscured by the interposing veil of human flesh. Nor is the statement negated by John 1.14, We beheld his glory, explained by Matthew 16.17, in contrast from the unregenerate masses before whom he appeared as a root out of a dry ground, having no form nor comeliness. Isaiah 53.2 it was God himself who was manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. The one born in Bethlehem's manger was the mighty God, Isaiah 9.6, and herald, heralded as Christ the Lord, Luke 2.11. Let there be no uncertainty on this point. Had he been emptied of any of his personal excellency, had his divine attributes been laid aside, then his satisfaction or sacrifice would not have possessed infinite value. The glory of his person was not in the slightest degree diminished when he became incarnate, though it was in measure concealed by the lowly form of the servant he assumed. Christ was still equal with God when he descended to earth. It was the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2.8, whom men crucified, and took upon him the form of a servant. That was the great condescension, yet it is not possible for us to fully grasp the infinity of the sun's stoop. If God humbled himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth, Psalm 113, verse 6, how much more so to actually become flesh and be amongst the most lowly. He entered into an office which placed him below God, John 14:28 and 1 Corinthians 11:3. He was for a season made lower than the angels, Hebrews 2.7. He was made under the law, Galatians 4.4. He was made lower than the ordinary condition of man, for he was a reproach of men and despised of the people, Psalm 22.6. What point all this gives to, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. How, earnest, how earnestly the Christian needs to seek grace to be content with the lowest place God and men assign him, to be ready to perform the meanest service, to be and do anything which brings glory to God. Chapter 29, The Humanity of Christ It has been truly said, quote, by J.C. Philpot, 1859, Right views concerning Christ are indispensable to a right faith and a right faith is indispensable to salvation. To stumble at the foundation is concerning faith to make shipwreck altogether. 
For as Emmanuel, God with us, is the grand object of faith, to err in views of his eternal deity, or to err in views of his sacred humanity, is alike destructive. There are points of truth which are not fundamental, though erroneous views on any one point must lead to God-dishonoring consequences in strict proportion to its importance and magnitude. But there are certain foundational truths to err concerning which is to ensure for the erroneous and the unbelieving the blackness of darkness forever. End quote. To know Christ as God, to know him as man, to know him as God-man, and this by divine revelation of his person, is indeed to have eternal life in our hearts. Nor can he be known in any other way than by divine and special revelation. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, Galatians 5:15 and 16, an imaginary conception of his person may be obtained by diligently studying the scriptures, but a vital knowledge of him must be communicated from on high, Matthew 16:17. A theoretical and theological knowledge of Christ is what the natural man may acquire, but a saving, soul-transforming view of him, 2 Corinthians 3.18, is only given by the Spirit to the regenerate, 1 John 5.20. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, Philippians 2.27. The first clause and the preceding verse was before us in the last two chapters. The two expressions we consider here balance with and thus serve to explain those in verse 6. The last clause of verse 7 is an exegesis of the one immediately preceding. Made in the likeness of men refers to the human nature of Christ assumed. The form of a servant denotes the position or state which he entered. So, Equal with God refers to the divine nature. The form of God signifies his manifested glory in his position of Lord over all. The humanity of Christ was unique. History supplies no analogy, nor can his humanity be illustrated by anything in nature. It is incomparable not only to our fallen human nature, but also to unfallen Adam's. The Lord Jesus was born into circumstances totally different from those in which Adam first found himself, but the sins and grief of his people were on him from the first. His humanity was produced neither by natural generation, as is ours, nor by special creation, as was Adam's. The humanity of Christ was, under the immediate agency of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally conceived, Isaiah 7.14, of the Virgin, it was prepared of God, Hebrews 10.5, yet made of a woman, Galatians 4.4. The uniqueness of Christ's humanity also appears in that it never had a separate existence of its own. The eternal Son assumed at the moment of Mary's conception a human nature, but not a human person. This important distinction calls for careful consideration. By a person is meant an intelligent being subsisting by himself. The second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature and gave it subsistence by union with his divine personality. It would have been a human person if it had not been 
excuse, excuse me, it would have been a human person if it had not been united to the Son of God. But being united to him, it cannot be called a person, because it never subsisted by itself as other men do. Hence, the force of that holy thing which shall be born of thee, Luke one thirty-five. It was not possible for a divine person to assign, assume another person, subsisting of itself, into union with himself. For two persons, remaining two, to become one person is a contradiction. A body thou hast prepared me, Hebrews 10.5. The me denotes the divine person, the body, the nature he took unto himself. The humanity of Christ was real. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made unto, like unto his brethren. Hebrews 2, 14, and 17. He assumed a complete human nature, spirit, soul, and body. Christ did not bring his human nature from heaven as some have strangely and erroneously concluded from 1 Corinthians 15:47, but it was composed of the very substance of his mother. In clothing himself with flesh and blood, Christ also clothed himself with human feelings, so he did not differ from his brethren, sin only excepted. While we always contend that Christ is God, let us never lose the conviction that he is most certainly a man. He is not God humanized, nor a human deified, but as to his Godhead, pure Godhead, equal and co-eternal with the Father, as to his manhood, perfect manhood, made in all respects like the rest of mankind, sin alone accepted. His humanity is real, for he was born. He lay in the virgin's womb, and in due time was born. The gate by which we entered our first life he passed through also. He was not created nor transformed, but his humanity was begotten and born. As he was born, so in a circumstance, so in the circumstances of his birth, he is completely human. He was as weak and feeble as any other babe. He is not only he is not even royal, but human. Those born in marble halls of old were wrapped in purple garments and were thought by the common people to be a superior race. But this babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes and a manger for a cradle so that the true humanity of his being would come out. Quoting from C.H. Spurgeon, quote, As he grows up, the very growth shows how completely human he is. He does not spring into full manhood at once, but he grows in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. When he reaches man's estate, he gets the common stamp of manhood upon his brow. In the sweat of thy brow shall thou eat bread is the common heritage of us all. And he received no better. The carpenter's shop must witness to the toils of a Savior, and when he, became, when he becomes the preacher and the prophet... Still we read such significant words as these, Jesus, being weary, sat thus on the well. We find him needing to betake himself to rest and sleep. He slumbers at the stem of the vessel when it is tossed in the midst of a tempest. Brethren, if sorrow be the mark of real manhood, 
and man is born unto trouble as sparks fly upward, certainly Jesus Christ had the truest evidence of being a man. If to hunger and to thirst be signs that he was no shadow and his manhood no fiction, you have these. If to associate with his fellow men and eat and drink as they did will be proof to your mind that he was none other than a man, you see him sitting at a feast one day, at another time he graces a marriage supper, and on another occasion he is hungry and hath not where to lay his head. End quote. They who, do, who deny Christ's derivation of real humanity through his mother undermine the atonement. His very fraternity, Hebrews 2.11, as our kinsman redeemer, depended on the fact that he obtained his humanity from Mary. Without this, he would neither possess the natural nor the legal union with his people, which must lie at the foundation of his representative character as the last Adam. To be our Goel, or Redeemer, his humanity could neither be brought from heaven nor immediately created by God, but must be derived, as ours was, from a human mother. But with this difference, his humanity never existed in Adam's covenant to entail guilt or taint. The humanity of Christ was holy, intrinsically, intrinsically so because it was of the Holy Ghost, Matthew 1.20. Absolutely so because taken into union with God, the Holy One. This fact is expressly affirmed in Luke 1.35, that holy thing, which is contrasted with, but we are all as an unclean thing, Isaiah 64.6. And that because we are shapen in iniquity and conceived in sin, Psalm 51.5. Though Christ truly became partaker of our nature, yet he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Hebrews 7.26. For this reason he could say, For the prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me, John 14.30. There was nothing in his, his pure humanity which could respond to sin or Satan. It was truly remarkable when man was made in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. But bow in wonderment and worship at the amazing condescension of God being made in the image of man. How this manifests the greatness of his love and the riches of his grace. It was for his people and their salvation that the eternal Son assumed human nature and abased himself even to death. He drew a veil over his glory that he might remove our reproach. Surely, pride must be forever renounced by the followers of such a Savior. Inasmuch the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5, lived in this world for 33 years, he has left an example that you should follow his steps, 1 Peter 2.21. He did no sin, nor should we, 1 Corinthians 15.24. Neither was guile found in his mouth, nor should it be in ours, Colossians 4.6. When he was reviled, he reviled not again, nor must his followers. He was weary in body, but not in well-doing. He suffered hunger and thirst, yet never murmured. He pleased not himself, Romans 15.3, nor must we, 2 Corinthians 5.15. He always did those things which please the Father, John 8.29. This, too, must ever be our aim, 2 Corinthians 5.9.
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.